Our guest today is Polly Collingridge. Polly works for the Cultural Intelligence Centre, who provide research-based tools, training and assessments to build cultural intelligence, otherwise known as CQ. Polly started a career in publishing, spending 15 years selling international and translation rights, and is a former board director of the independent book publisher Canongate. Then, at the age of 38, she moved with her family to the US and spent three years in the San Francisco Bay Area. The experience of living and working in a different culture, plus the reverse culture shock her family experienced on returning to the UK, prompted a midlife career transformation. Polly studied for an MSc in cross-cultural psychology and has since forged a new career supporting individuals and businesses in intercultural communication. She is passionate about working towards much needed change in the development of cultural intelligence. Polly, welcome to the Right Side of 40 podcast. And before we start, we like to ask our guests, are you feeling on the right side of 40 today? I really am. Thank you, Caroline, for having me. (laughs) We are so pleased to have you on board. I, I have to confess, I did not know I do not know properly what cultural intelligence is. I can't be alone in this. And I know you're going to tell us all about it. So from a work perspective, what is cultural intelligence? So absolutely, Caroline, and you're right, you're not alone. Um, Cultural intelligence is the capability to relate to and work effectively alongside people from uh, different cultural backgrounds to you. Is this us all muddling along together and getting on well? (laughs) This is exactly that. Um, This is exactly that. And to kind of understand cultural intelligence, you sort of need to get what culture is. And I think culture is one of those words that can mean a lot of different things, depending on the context. But but, um, yeah, so culture um, really is the way we do things around here. You know, it could be the culture in an organisation. It could be you know, the culture of a particular profession. And of course, we tend to think, oh, you know, culture is your nationality. It's the first thing that maybe comes to mind, but it's also, you know, your gender, your generation, your race, your sexual orientation, et cetera. Like, you know, I'm, for example, I'm from England, I'm from London, I'm white, I'm a mum, and these are all elements of my culture. Yeah, does that mean you inhabit several cultures simultaneously? Yeah, absolutely. You do. You have, you know, every one of us has multiple kind of intersectional cultural identities at any one time. And you kind of dial those up or down depending on who you're with. You know, you've always got something in common with someone. You've just got to kind of find what it is. You know, it may be that you both play tennis or something or football or whatever it is. There's always a point of connection. And that's that's what we're always looking for as well, isn't it, in conversations with people. And I suppose some of this we must be doing unconsciously all the time, working out what we have in common with people, how to interact with people. Like some of it is some of it's quite sort of innate that we've learned as we've gone along. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I was thinking about this and I reckon that, you know, even as kids, we start being culturally intelligent. You know, when you're a child and or a teenager particularly, and you start to kind of, you know, you talk a certain way with your friends and then you use kind of different language when you come home and you're catching up with your parents that evening. You're not using the same sort of slang that you'd use at school with your friends because you know intuitively that your parents aren't going to understand what you're talking about or that your parents want you to talk in a different way. (laughs) Or, 
you know, and I, you, I know, Caroline, you and I have spoken before about emojis um, and the sort of different emoji usage of by sort of Gen Z um, kids today and, you know, us kind of I wouldn't, I wouldn't even dare use an emoji on my children for fear <laughs> of ridicule. I just, in fact, I've gone very 1950s. I use full punctuation. I have been told that all these things are wrong in a text or a message, but I just decided that if you can't get it right, uh, I'm just going to revert to some very old stereotype. And, and, and I think that's better for them as well. Like, yeah, so I funny. agree. I think you know, just don't don't try and be what you're not. But uh, <laughs> you mean cool and young? Yeah, yeah. I get it wrong. I'm you okay wrong. with that. But then I'm now okay we're advocating for not being culturally intelligent. I think it's knowing when you know to adapt and still being true to yourself. <laughs> So how does that manifest itself at work? How do we apply cultural intelligence? A culturally intelligent workplace is a place where people feel listened to and included, where everybody is making that effort to find out a little bit about each other's perspectives. I'm sort of jumping straight in here because I haven't really delved into what it requires to be culturally intelligent. It's about self-awareness in the first instance, being aware that your perspectives are just one of many. I think we all kind of know that, but we, what we don't really, maybe, maybe what we're not fully aware of is the fact that our perspective isn't the only right one. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> It sort of sounds obvious. Sorry, I don't understand. (laughs) It sounds obvious, but it's kind of, you know, we're all seeing the world through our own kind of cultural lens. And it's about, first of all, recognising that and then um, recognising that everyone else is doing that too. So I guess a, a culturally intelligent employee is somebody who adapts the way they behave around other people and has and has taken the time to understand that you know, different cultural groups have have different ways of seeing things. Why do we need this? Why do we need to have this? What What's the benefit? So we need it because I don't believe we can get on in our sort of divided world. It's more polarised than ever, you know, as you know. And I don't believe we can get on. The world is so diverse and divided as well, I feel, more than ever before. It's, it's odd because we're all closer, and, you know, the world with globalization, we're all sort of closer and have the potential to communicate with each other and rub along with each other more than we ever did. And yet, you know, it's in this kind of era of kind of culture wars, I think it's particularly important that we take the time to um, figure out how to see things from each other's perspectives and, and treat each other as as other people would like to be treated. I, we, we talk a lot about the golden rule. I'm sure you, you, know, you know what that is, you know, treat others as you'd like to be treated. But at the Cultural Intelligence Centre, we talk about the platinum rule, which is treat others as they'd like to be treated, which sounds nice, but is incredibly hard to do. It's uh, a good aspiration though, isn't it? It is a good aspiration. And, and, you know, there are a lot of companies out there right now who are hiring um you know making a conscious effort to hire in a more more diverse workforce then what do you do with this diverse workforce you've got them all there great it doesn't instantly mean they're all going to get on it's the inclusion piece that you know where cultural intelligence comes in so you need the the cultural intelligence to figure out how to turn that diversity into you know into higher performance you know it's kind of like the promised land oh yeah like diversity equals success but actually that's not true you know homogenous teams, you know, groups of people that are all really similar to each other, actually, you know, have less conflict, 
because uh, of course you know they know how to get along with each other better they understand each other they feel part of the club with each other but they have so many blind spots you know and so many companies today like don't necessarily understand the true diversity of their their customer base you know their clients and so and of course the nature of a blind spot is you don't know you've got it what you need to do wow. is is hire you know a diverse group of people but then also spend effort and time figuring out how to make their that diverse group of people feel included and listen and help them feel that they can listen to each other and that's really exactly why you need cultural intelligence so do you think organizations are kind of understanding this better now like as part of the kind of toolkits that big organizations or even smaller ones need that they're recognizing that they need to address this yeah, I, I think we're getting there slowly, for sure. I mean, I, I was at the CIPD Festival of Work a couple of days ago in Olympia. And, you know, there were a lot of inspiring sessions focused around inclusion and sort of lead, inclusive leadership. I think slowly, slowly, we're starting to realize that it that it matters. You know, emotional intelligence is, is a sort of, is definitely one of those terms, psychological safety, all of these terms, terms that are, bandied around now pretty regularly with an assumption that people understand what they mean and that they matter but that said i feel like you know it could well be that i'm in an echo chamber because i'm i work in this area so it's so easy yeah. to, to um to fall into the trap of thinking that everybody knows about it and um, there are still a lot of people out there who are i think highly skeptical and are ultimately all about you know it's the bottom line that matters and we don't have time to focus on this fluffy stuff but of course Obviously, I would say this, but it's not fluffy stuff. It's, you know, all these soft skills are the hardest ones of all. Directly correlates to to greater performance, you know, well-being and and listening to each other and a sense of belonging. It really, really impacts on our the way we feel and and how we perform. It's interesting what you're saying about emotional intelligence, because I think you're right. I think there are terms that we've got used to, aren't there? There's IQ there's EQ, emotional intelligence, and now we're adding sort of CQ is is how it's termed. How do they differ? Are some fixed? Can you improve them? Yeah, I was looking into that because IQ, I always thought was fixed. You know, that's that. Actually, I think it may be that you can improve your IQ a little bit, but I I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not an expert on IQ, but I think you can, surely. I mean, that, it's all about sort of how you use logic and reasoning. And, you know, I'm sure if you kind of practice and did loads of IQ tests over and over, you might get better at it. But I guess that's anyway, that's your kind of intellectual ability. And then your emotional intelligence is really how you um, recognize and manage your own emotions and those of others and kind of adapt your behavior accordingly, I guess. And I'm, I'm not an expert on EQ either, but I think we, it's pretty much universally recognised that emotional intelligence is a really important skill to have in the workplace. Yeah. Uh, and the way the way cultural intelligence fits into that is that it, it kind of picks up where EQ, emotional intelligence, um, leaves off in the sense that you can be emotionally intelligent, but not emotionally intelligent across different cultures. So, like for example, um, you may feel that you understand somebody, but actually you don't because in their culture they express emotions in a different way to you so you know maybe they're not looking you in the eye when they're speaking to you and you think that they are lying and you know you start to feel angry or whatever about that but actually you've totally misinterpreted them because they're trying to be extra respectful because in their culture not looking you in the eye isn't a sign potentially of of being untruthful but actually a sign of respect so you can't you can be high in emotional intelligence but it doesn't necessarily translate 
in, a, in, a, in an intercultural setting. So how do you learn to be culturally intelligent? How, what skills do you have to pick up and how, how do you do that? Yeah, so the cultural intelligence framework was um, developed by a couple of uh, social scientists who were based at a university in Singapore around the turn of the century. And they, they came up with this framework that was based around four capabilities, drive, knowledge, strategy, and action. It's all around, first of all, drive. It's like your motivation that you can't be culturally intelligent unless you want to be. So, you know, you've really, like anything, you've got to want to do it to, to, yeah. to, to be it. Um, kind of, so it's all around your why. You know, if you want to relate effectively across cultures, then you need to work on your motivation. So a culturally intelligent person is somebody who's open and curious around other cultures and, and feels confident around their efforts to do that. And they've also taken the time to understand about different um, cultures and then they plan ahead when they know that they're going to have some sort of intercultural interaction and think okay how am I going to go about this so there's some strategic element to it it's not just sort of winging it you actually have to have that piece before the action part which is the final capability within the framework which is okay so I know I want to and I found out some stuff and I figured out how I'm going to approach this but then I've actually got to do it <laughs> um, which is you know how you maybe adapt the, the language you use the way you say things your you know, how expressive you are or not, and that kind of thing. Um, so the way you go about doing that is you take an assessment. Uh, the Cultural Intelligence Centre, our, our founder, who's a woman called Lynn Van Dyne, she developed the assessment. Um, and, and that's kind of the beginning of your, and I hate this word, journey. Um, I feel like it's a bit cliche hey, about your journey. We're all but... on a journey. <laughs> um, we're that's, racing so that's it. where it starts. Um, you, you kind of, you, you take the assessment and you get your score. And like that gives you a measure, a sort of a snapshot of your cultural intelligence, like where you're at at, at that moment in time. And from there, you can um, start to see where your strengths and weaknesses are. You know, and everyone's different. Like some people have really high drive, but quite low action. You know, some people, they're really good at strategizing. They're not so good at the other bit, other bits of it. And uh, yeah, so that's where it starts. So you set yourself your goals. And the idea is to, you know, set yourself a goal that's realistic in its uh, level of difficulty, you know, not too easy, not too hard, and to be held accountable, because I think we probably all know with behavior change, like if you're not held accountable, probably not going to do it. Um, yeah. So that's really, it definitely rests a lot on you as an individual wanting to, to do this. But the mm. part that's really interesting with the assessment is you also have, you get your uh, cultural values measured. We've got 10 cultural values that are your individual. And you've done the assessment, Eve, haven't you? Yes, I was just going to say um, something about that when you're yeah, finished. Yeah. I, the whole time you're talking, I'm actually really worried that I'm going to do the test and have a low score. And I was also thinking that Eve's worked all over the world and she's, you know, and lived in many cultures and she's going to get a better score than me and I was feeling a bit competitive and, and a bit like, oh, God, I'm really going to have to work hard at this. But uh, well, you know, no, no, no competition at all. But, you know, <laughs> you can be and not to say that Eve isn't, but you can have traveled all around the world and still be not very culturally intelligent. Because that's one of the kind of myths of, of cultural intelligence <laughs> right. is that international travel equals cultural intelligence. Because, of course, it all depends on whether you kind of decide to go full immersion or not. Yeah. You know, whether it, if you end up living in a kind of That's expat true. ghetto, then you can emerge after however many years somewhere, sort of none the wiser about what yeah. you missed out and, on. And I have met many of those people. 
we all have. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was really interesting doing the test because, of course, I was competitive too, thinking I really need to get a good score on this. Because <laughs> if I don't, oh my God, what am I doing? But it was really interesting because I did get a score that I kind of expected for exactly those reasons. You know, I do care very much about culture. I do care about other people. I care about making connections. And I, you know, and, and especially at work, I understand the value of getting the best out of people. And sometimes you got to, you know, you got to understand a whole bunch of stuff. It's not obvious. And also, you know, coming from an immigrant family, my parents are British, we grew up in French Canada. So, you know, I, from a very early age, I understand what it means to be the odd one out. So I really get that. So it was really interesting doing the test because, as you say, the cultural values at the end, I was a little bit sort of shocked at how much I was in the Anglo-Saxon Germanic column, you know, because I thought I'm, you know, I'm more international than that. Oh, no. <laughs> so, I know. <laughs> it, it can be surprising whether or not you fit. So these, so just to explain the, the cultural values, um, there are 10 of them that are captured in the assessment. And it's things like, you know, how you react to say hierarchy in the workplace, whether you, you know, whether that's a, a way of working that you that you like or seek out or not or things like how direct or indirect the communicator you are or um your attitude to risk or and that sort of thing and um yeah and then it and then it shows you whether or not you're kind of representative of your national culture but you know what most people many people are not representative of their national culture and um i think they would be potentially if you had like thousands of people because obviously these stereotypes are, are there for a reason you know these are values that uh, tend to kind of cluster in certain cultures um more than others but of course you know you as an individual don't necessarily represent you know think about everybody in britain we're not all the same <laughs> and so and that's something we tend to do you know we we meet people from another country and we say oh they're all like this or they're all like that because it's one of our biases you know it's anyone in the out group they're all the same and of course we're all different because we know our differences and, and oh, so that's thing. <laughs> oh, oh okay that <laughs> No, we like to think we're so individual, but yeah. We like to think we are, but I'm not always so sure. So can I ask, obviously, this podcast, we're talking about women over the age of 40 at work. Does does gender play? Are women better at it? Um, again, this is not competitive, but I'm just interested, you know, do we get better at this with age? Does our, our, the kind of roles that women have, does that help us? What, what's your sort of thinking on that? I would love to say, yes, women are better and more culturally intelligent. <laughs> we but don't I need to be to better. Say, <laughs> I, well, I have to say that I, I looked into this and I, um, I'm afraid to say that there is no um, sort of definitive research that shows that women are more culturally intelligent. But that said, Having empathy is very important, an important part of cultural intelligence. But out of the uh, the five sort of, you know, big five personality traits, the only one that correlates with cultural intelligence is openness um, to other experiences. So I guess you can be a very empathic woman, but not be necessarily that curious. And so mm. therefore not culturally intelligent. You know, it's also extroversion was also one of the personality traits that that correlated with quite a few of the cultural intelligence capabilities, but openness was the one that correlated with all of those, you know, drive, knowledge, strategy and action. But yeah, and then age, um, that's an interesting one too. And, and studies haven't shown any particular uh, sort of correlation with age, but 
I would, I mean, obviously, if you start trying to be more culturally intelligent at a younger age, by the time you're, you know, however old, yeah, exactly. you will have got better if you've been working at it. So, yeah, definitely. In well, that sense. also, I expect that a lot of these things which are new to us, and that's why we're covering them on the podcast, because I think the workplace has changed. There's a lot more insight into the things that make a good workplace and the kind of skills that people need to make that a success. I think our younger colleagues, they're kind of getting that at the beginning of their career and therefore it should be easier for them because this is just built into the way the way we work. Whereas I think it is a bit harder when you're older. You might have accumulated skills, you might have lived in different cultures, you might have met, you know, people at work or you know, sort of mums at the school gate, living in diverse communities. You're all sort of, as I said right at the beginning, you're all muddling along and, you know, finding your your, your differences and the things that which where you're absolutely the same. But, you know, certainly in the workplace, a lot of this stuff and this thinking, it's the thinking really, isn't it, was not around. I mean, we might have done it just intrinsically in the people that we are, but it wasn't around. So I think it's got to be, it's got to be easier for younger people going forward. And by the time they get to our age, we won't even be having these discussions probably. It'll just be part of the workplace and part of what makes you a successful person in the workplace and will benefit you in your career. That sounds really aspirational. Well, I know it's definitely a utopian vision for me. Like I just feel like I wish that schools focused more on um on kind of cultural intelligence and just because I think from a really young age you can do it I think it's funny because it sort of clashes with what schools are all about which in a way is socializing children into their own individual culture I mean so much of what you do when you're you know little sitting kind of cross-legged on the carpet is actually if you look at it you're you're being taught about the culture of your country and but I do think kids, especially, I mean, you know, my experience is going to, to the primary school in London and my own kids experience too. It is, you know, we live in really diverse communities and, and we've got diversity all around us and perhaps acknowledging a little bit more within the curriculum, the fact that it's not just sort of celebrating Diwali, it's actually kind of getting more into the kind of giving those kids more of a stage to talk about how, how things are. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how you do it, but I think it's yeah. yeah. I think people find that difficult because a lot of people want to have a sort of a core identity and they see that diversity makes it difficult for them to choose a core identity. So, you know, I grew up in Quebec when it was there was a separatist movement and that was very much about defining sort of a national identity. And so there was this struggle as to like who are we as a people? And I think as individuals, we also struggle with that, which is, you know, who am I? And having too many sort of inputs. I think a lot of people find that really difficult. And I think that also manifests itself at work where they're not open. And I, I think you're right. It's sort of like, it's maybe it's not age, it's not gender, if that's what the science is saying. It's really your natural disposition and sort of, you know, who you are as a person. I think so. I think you're right. Culture and identity, it's huge. Um, because you know, your identity, it's all about, you know, your sense of belonging somewhere, you know, you're defined by the people around you and their view of you and you derive a sense of self-esteem from that. Tell us about your experience of moving your family to America. What did you find as the key cultural differences? I'm interested in who found it easier. Was it your partner who was, it was his job that prompted the move, wasn't it? But then of course you move, the kids have to go to a new school, in a new country in some ways that makes it easier for them because they make friends but how was the experience I mean this is something lots of people do 
and that actually prompted a career change. Yeah, it did. No, so my, um, I'd say my husband found it the easiest because, you know, he was the reason we moved. Uh, you know, he had the job and the purpose. And he was also lucky because he had colleagues who, um, whilst they were American, he was British, they got on really well. They had a lot in common. They had a great working relationship. He loved his job there. So for him, everything was very easy. I'd say either uh, myself or my son found it the hardest. Um, so my son at the time was six or seven when we moved. He struggled with the transition, definitely. I mean, it was actually really hard. Then he did sort of settle in. And um, once he started school, it got better because we moved in the summer holidays, as so many people do. And there was suddenly no routine. I remember we got there and he said, who am I going to have play dates with? And I thought, oh my God, he's right. Who, who's he going to have play dates with? So then it was like Operation Find Friends. And I would go to sort of playgrounds with the kids and just sort of go up to people luckily I mean I have to say living in California I would imagine it would be infinitely harder in many other places but in terms of striking up superficial conversations with people who also have kids it's got to be the easiest thing there oh, so yeah you know yeah I lived in Seattle for nine and a half years and we had a similar not exactly but a similar scenario and that is one thing that Americans are really good at is they are super open to just talking to strangers and they're very happy to have a chat and they do make you know friends very easily that way which you know was really helpful yeah, I mean, actually, this sort of segues rather nicely into your other question, Caroline, about what I found hardest or what are the key cultural differences, because actually um, it was exactly that as well. It was the sort of so socialization differences sort of or socializing differences in the sense that, you know, it was great to be able to strike up these easy superficial um, friendships but they were only that superficial and of course I had no friends there so I needed more than superficial you know I was looking mm. for I wasn't looking for a best friend but I was looking for an invite to someone's house for a coffee I was looking for shared confidences I needed that because you know I didn't have it anywhere else and you don't really get that quickly and easily um, at least not in, in amongst the people I met in California in comparison I would say to the UK where you'd have much more of a reserved beginning to the to the sort of friendship, but then it would probably go deeper quicker. Or I just felt like I could read the signs of whether this was going somewhere better. I think what happened to me quite a lot when we were living in the States was I would have conversations with mums over a coffee morning at school and they'd say, we should go for a hike sometime. And I'd say, great. And then it never got really firmed up or if it did, it happened you know, months down the line. And I was like, right, when? Like tomorrow? You know, I've got anything else to do, you know. So I, I found that interesting. And then I since learned that uh, there's this analogy that's been termed, you know, peach versus coconut um, cultures. It was um, came up with by this um, guy called Trompenars, Fons Trompenars. He's an interculturalist. But he's, uh, yeah, he came up with this kind of notion of peach cultures versus coconut cultures. And the UK in comparison to the US is very much a coconut culture in the sense that it's harder to make friends initially, but then once you go get past that sort of hard exterior, there's quite a lot there that sort of opens up for you. <laughs> Whereas with the peach, it's all sort of soft and easy at the beginning, but then you get to this hard, seemingly impenetrable stone in the middle that you can't quite crack. Um, and I really found that to be true. And I found it particularly difficult because of course I was a bit needy of friends and I, I did oh. eventually make friends. So yeah. <laughs> It does yeah. take a while, and I I completely I completely relate to that because we moved our family. We didn't move that far away, and we moved to a different 
area of London, but it was a complete transition, you know, new house, new area, new schools for the kids. And having gone from living somewhere where my children used to complain that I couldn't, they couldn't get out of school because I was so busy talking to people because I knew had known people for so long and had that sort of community you couldn't walk down the street without seeing 10 people you knew to being somebody who knows nobody in the playground you know and is is a really really hard feeling people were really nice and they were friendly but they had their own groups they had their own established friendship groups and I think it's hard to crack that like you say like that coconut you know it's and it's not because there's something wrong with you or that that people aren't nice it's made me I don't know whether I act on it but it's made me more mindful of other people who are new into a situation which I don't think I did so much before I've actually yeah. learned something <laughs> you're thank so god was, finally you're so right you're so right Caroline it's you know it's that we all need to feel, you know, um, like we belong. I feel I feel like, well, it goes back to that sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you know what I mean, you know, where it starts with, you know, we, you get your basic needs when you when you move house or you move country. Yes, you know, you've got your, your you know, your food and shelter or whatever. And as long as you feel relatively safe, that's all fine. But literally the next thing on the rung or whatever of that pyramid is is belonging and a feeling of love and connection. And, and you know, it's your social network. That's just, you know, wherever you move, suddenly not feeling sort of seen or recognised or like you like you don't belong because they people aren't shouting out in a friendly way across the playground. They don't know you. And that's kind of magnified even more, I think, when you move to a, to a different to a national, you know, to a different country. I hadn't realized how much even kind of crazy things like, I don't know, my like the fact that I think it was a bit hard for me when I left my job because I'd been working in publishing before I moved to the US. That was a large part of my identity as well. You know, I, I worked in publishing. I, you know, I was a rights director. I worked for a company. People knew kind of a little bit about that company. So it sort of said something about me and who I was, you know, and then when we moved to the States, they were like, oh, you work in publishing. You know, if we'd moved to New York, probably that would have meant more. But um, on the West Coast, there aren't so many. It's not such a sort of big publishing hub. People didn't know what the rights sort of selling part of it was all about. So I sort of felt like I couldn't define myself. I was just a, a British mum. But yeah, I felt like, well, who am I then? It was a bit like when I became a mum, but in reverse. You know, when I first became a mum, I felt like a complete imposter, you know, and I felt like I couldn't say I was a mum because I didn't feel like one I didn't know how to be one and then when I moved to to America it was like well I'm not Polly the rights director anymore um so who am I I'm, I'm Polly the sort of British mum but, but but I'm more than just that and I don't know I think it's it's weird yeah. you only realize when you're out of your cultural home mm. what, what all of these things mean to you yeah and it's really interesting to hear and you know I want to talk about your reverse uh re you know reverse cultural experience too because what's re what was also quite shocking interesting to me was as a north american I thought going to the States, I'd totally get it. You know, I'm a north american, I'm canadian, I know how this works. Uh no. So, you know, America is another land, you know, it's another culture, it's another, and, you know, of course, every place has its own local culture, like you were saying, you know, so Seattle had its own culture, Washington State has its own culture, and so on. So it was really interesting going there to work. And even though I had worked with many of the people I was there to work with, there were many that I did not. And I really did have to get to understand the local culture and how I fit in and 
But then the other interesting thing that happened was, is that because of how I sound, they assumed I was one of them. And so they got confused when I didn't understand something, either a cultural reference or a cultural behavior. And then I had to explain that I'm Canadian and they were like, oh, so there were lots of sort of misunderstandings or just confusion, you know, because we were all making assumptions about the other. And so, you know, I, I've had all kinds of sort of cultural shock, you know, there and back coming back here, you know, having been changed as well, because, you know, I moved here as a young person from Canada. So I, you know, was here for a long time, then moving to America, then coming back. So, you know, I've got about a hundred different cultural identities, but it's it's been a very interesting process and it definitely helps me understand and navigate all the differences. So I have this sort of cultural translation service running in my head all the time. Do you have that? Well, I don't know that I've even lived in as many places as you, but I do. I do. I think a lot now so much more about what assumptions am I making about somebody? And it's so you really have to stop and slow down to, to sort of capture those because they're there all the time. And that's just the way our brains are wired. So there's no point feeling bad about it. We really can't help it. But it is there's a huge amount of point to try and be become more aware of it. Yeah. yeah. So you help people settle in the UK. How do you do that? Actually, I helped. Yeah, it was a mixture of helping people settle in the UK and also um, sort of a, a, around the world from wherever they were moving to somewhere else. And um, yeah, I worked briefly for a, an agency that supported, provided kind of global mobility services. Actually, I really enjoyed that because it was like, you know, it was the sort of logistical piece, the sort of doing the research and, and helping people find, in, our, in my case, it was around supporting families. And the agency I work for was sort of specialised in that kind of hand-holding experience for families. So it was about finding schools initially. That was the main focus of, of the work we were doing. But the part that was missing for me was the culture piece. It was all the, you know, the practical side, but not focused so much on the culture. And having Having made that move and, and having lived in other countries too at different times, I knew how much it wasn't just about that geographical move and the logistics. It was so much also about that really, for want of a better phrase, psychological transition that you go through when you move from one culture to another. And even as Caroline said, when you move from one part of the UK to another, you know, Absolutely. there's still a psychological transition that, that happens. Yeah, because people are different and they're, they've, they've set up different groups and different just slightly different ways of doing things. It's funny hearing you two talk about the US and uh, North America. And I always thought that I've worked with lots, lots of North Americans and other cultures in London. And I naively have thought that, well, that's not much of a cultural difference because we're so close. I mean, I kind of know slightly better now, but for a long time, I really didn't think about it that much and then I was working for one organization and they had they regularly had uh, young people come over from the US on um, a kind of work scheme for the summer and they would have placements in organizations and one of them was in our in our office and we were you know, we were chatting one day and she was starting to tell us about how they I think I was just chatting and I said do they how do they prepare you for for you know working in the UK and she said oh yeah well the first thing they tell us is um, you're going to be expected to make tea uh, <laughs> which I thought oh yeah well what you don't do that well, I suppose maybe you don't nope I mean Eve's, shake, Eve's shaking her head you know like <laughs> but whereas the tea the tea making in a British office is a it's a major cultural thing isn't it the the offering the accepting 
the quality of the tea making. And she said, now, I don't know whether they were giving them tea making courses before they left or anything. But I mean, she said that was the first thing she said, said. And the second thing she said was that apparently we're not as direct. And so that if somebody asks you if you would mind doing something, or perhaps if you've got time or whatever, they actually mean you should do that right away. And I was really struck by this. And I sort of thought for a minute. And and then I went, oh my God, you're absolutely right. You know that thing I I said to you half an hour ago that if you had time to do, I actually meant for you to do it now, you know. <laughs> Whereas in America I realized- Put it to one side and go, I'll deal with that yeah. like six months from now. And I realized that I'd gone up to her and said, oh, you know, so-and-so, if you, um, I, it would be really helpful if you wouldn't mind doing blah, 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 blah today in the normal way that, you know, my normal way in which I would talk to somebody and expecting, of course, her to take that as you know, this person's asked me to do something and I'll do it. And yeah, apparently. And then she kind of went, oh, and then stood up and went and did it. So we had a real cultural exchange and I'd never thought about any of that before. Yeah. And um, that's what I that mean. there was such yeah, I never honestly, if I never appreciated the cultural yeah. differences in the workplace, having never worked in America. Yeah. Or and anywhere that's else. what I mean by having a translation service. So, you know, I've worked in France as well and, you know, and I've worked with French people. So it is, it's like especially when I was working in the States, like there were lots of Brits in the company who were also in the States and people would come up to me and say, they've said this, I don't know what that means. And I would have to translate and exactly that sort of thing. Or we're in a meeting and I would go to the person afterwards and say, you know, when he said with all due respect, he really thinks what you said was stupid. It's, it's not actually that he respects your idea. So just so you understand that's what he means. That's highly sarcastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whereas the Americans yeah. thought, oh, he was being really respectful. He told me so. Yeah. No. That's, I don't know if you've seen them, Eve. You, it sounds like you may have done. There are these these kind of little graphics that go around saying, you know, when Brits say this, they mean that or, you know. Um, and they they are seriously sort of emailed around or, or sent to people who are, you know, planning to come here because we are famously indirect compared to the Americans. But of course, it's all relative because we're very direct compared to, say, I don't know, the Chinese or the Japanese. So, you know, it's all relative. That's the thing. But yeah, you're totally right. I mean, so many misunderstandings in the workplace. You know, you could be passed over for a promotion because you you haven't realized that you're not responding and, you know, that somebody's asking you to do things and you're not actually doing them quick enough. Like in that example you just gave, Caroline, you know, these things can, can have serious repercussions they're not just jokey things about not you know making tea or whatever it could be if you have time can you do that you know piece of work oh I didn't have time you know and then you think yeah. oh my god I can't believe they didn't do it let's <laughs> talk about that because you did you, t- you mentioned earlier that it has a real impact on the bottom line tell us a bit more about that well I just think you know I know that in the research that CQ um, predicts all sorts of good things that we want in the workplace like you know higher productivity and uh, and you know better performance and I think that comes about not because it makes people work harder but it just makes people work more effectively together so there's less conflicts less misunderstanding and obviously that saves an enormous amount of time. So it's frustrating sometimes, you know, when we're talking to people about the training and they may say, oh, you know, the budget or whatever. And you just think, oh, God, but think how much you might save if you can iron out these these misunderstandings. It was actually incredibly heartening yesterday because I had a meeting with several NHS representatives of different NHS trusts who've all decided to do the cultural intelligence 
training um, certification so that they can roll out the training in their organizations. And we'd invited a representative from another NHS trust who's already been doing this for a couple of years. And she just said they have literally they are seeing improved patient care, like better outcomes as a result of the training that has been rolled out over several thousand people now. Fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's really, I mean, and they have the uh, the cultural values we were talking about earlier, they have maps pinned up on the wall in their department, and they refer back to it when they, you know, maybe have some sort of misunderstanding. Oh, yeah, so, you know, you, you said it this way, you, you know, you weren't meaning to be rude, you're just much more of a direct communicator than me, or you're much less expressive than me. So, you know, and then obviously, they have training on what do you do? It's not just about, oh, accepting that they're different, but how can we both flex and adapt to meet in the middle somewhere? So is that, is it improved patient care because the medical professionals are working better together? So they're able? I think, yeah, to... I think it's a combination of things. She didn't go into the detail. Um, but I think from what I understood, it was understanding maybe the patient better as well. Yeah. And working together better with your colleagues to provide the care for that patient. So it's all of those mm. things. You know, because I know the training they were rolling out was for clinicians, it was for admin people, clerical people, it was for a combination of different roles in different yeah. functions. Okay. So direct patient care and medical professionals working together. Because, yeah, they both, you know, you're going to experience issues with CQ in all of those. Sorry, Eve, you were going to say something. No, yeah, I was just going to say that what I think is really interesting about that is that it gives everybody a shared vocabulary and a structure to make it transparent and visible, because I think that's something that, you know, we, the assumption is, is that you'll pick it up or that, you know, it's, it's sort of a natural thing. Whereas what you're highlighting is that it's actually a skill and we can learn it. And if we have a structure and a vocabulary, we can talk about it. And that means that other people can learn it too. And I, I just think that's what's really powerful about it. Yeah, I mean, that's spot on, Eve. It's the, it's the common language. We see that time and again. And in fact, we talk about that as being what's so helpful for people, because once you have a language that you can all use, it can take the tension out of a situation. And the thing that's different about um, CQ training is that I genuinely think it's a really inclusive way of talking about inclusion, because, you know, we come at it at, in, the, in the way that I've been describing, you know, we're, we're all individuals influenced by our cultural background. Here's the language. There's a skill that's about adapting, flexing around these different cultural backgrounds, you know, when we're interacting with people from different groups. So we use this language, we recognise that, you know, there are skills we need to sort of hone to do this better. And we talk about our cultural values. And of course, the 10 values are not the only differences you need to know about cultures, but they're a starting point. So you start with those. So we do training for teams where they map their different cultural values. And then we always find that's just such a great conversation starter especially when people are skeptical, you know, what's this all about? Because it's like, oh, you know, I didn't realize you were like this, like that. And it just gets people talking. And that's your entry point, really. And then you, they start to see how it can apply to them. So it's all about the application. You know, how does it apply to you personally? Because you can kind of understand intellectually. Yeah, I can see that this is important, but I don't think I need it because I think I'm fine or whatever. And it's about trying to trying to work out, trying to find every individual person's why, because they may think that they're brilliant, they're international, they're, you know, they're really good with all different groups, they don't have prejudices. I mean, we all do, so that can't be true. But, you know, then it might be that their one blind spot is getting on with their kids at home, or, you know, some relative who's got very different political views to them, or whatever it is, there's always going to be some group that's difficult for somebody. What are the areas people struggle with? do you think you know in the workplace I think it depends on who you are I think you know if you're you know I've spent some time now 
going to various events in the in the diversity and inclusion space and and listening to representatives from different marginalized groups and they they've all got some strong reasons to feel like this this is why it's particularly hard for for our group but actually you know it's about it's a recognition i think we started off talking about the intersectionality of all of our different cultures and I think it's just on a case by case basis. Every individual has different groups of people that they might find hard for their own particular reasons. I also like the idea that cultural intelligence sort of gives a language for being able to talk about things like diversity and inclusion in a way that perhaps is is just easier for everybody because you know opinions can be polarized as you said different groups have different things they find difficult and so if this is what cultural intelligence offers us this sort of language and toolkit where we can talk about these issues within that framework of diversity and inclusion i think that's only that can only be a good thing it's a way of moving forward through these issues hopefully that is is it seems to in some ways it's i'm hoping that it's working across cultures it's providing that way of thinking that identifying what those important things are in terms of beliefs and values and kind of breaking it down rather than it being a discussion about particular groups and what and what their aims and needs are yeah i think honestly the more i'm sort of in this work the more i realize i'm able to be a bit more to like I, I said before sort of slow my thinking down a little bit and suspend my judgment a little bit you know it makes me think for example and i have reflected on the fact that you know my experience traveling and living in different countries has been colored by the fact that i am a, a white british woman you know different obviously people from different nationalities of different races and, and potentially genders might have a different experience definitely they definitely mm -hmm. would and so it's just about you know going back to that intersectionality you know we've all got multiple cultural identities and we have more or less privilege and, and privilege is something that's talked about a lot in the diversity and inclusion space in different spaces so for example i'm very privileged in most areas of my life and i recognize that um in terms of my color my race my my um nationality in many ways my um education level um and the advantages that all of those things have sort of conferred on me where i have less privileges in my gender in certain spaces but you know we also have sort of more or more or less visible privileges you know there are people walking around with chronic illnesses and disabilities that you can't see you know yeah. different types of neurodivergent you know struggling with different things that aren't necessarily visible and it's just about always remembering that the more you think about it the more you realize that you bear it in mind when you talk to people you know which i think can only be a good thing one thing we didn't talk about is you talked about reverse culture shock when you came back to the uk i just wondered how how that manifested itself yeah we had such a difficult time and i think well i particularly had a difficult time and i think it was for several reasons um one was because i'd agonized over whether or not to come back we actually had the choice i would suggest that having the choice is actually worse than not having the choice and i and i thought it wouldn't be the case i thought i felt sorry for those people who get posted around they have no control but because i'd felt like i'd made the decision it was very much on my shoulders and our plane landed at heathrow and literally we we touched down i thought what have i done i felt my world shrink overnight because it was fantastic being you know living in san francisco not least because it's an amazing part of the world beautiful place to live but also we had two worlds we had you know we had a foot in each and suddenly our world shrank back to just um our london life 
which had been a great life, but suddenly it felt a bit less than because we'd gained all these other experiences. And then nobody knew that we had had them, really. Nobody understood what we'd gone through. And oh, I think yeah. that's what it was. I think it was that we came back with this sort of extra level of knowledge. We felt like there was a whole part of us. Again, it's an identity thing that wasn't being recognised. We'd changed a bit. Yeah, so that's really what knew. I was thinking. You changed. You'd had a new experience and you came back. Um, I don't know whether you did you come back to your same house and the same oh, area that was, that, that was also what was yeah happening. and then yeah but you've you've as a family you've all changed and you've experienced something else and then yeah I can imagine you felt quite squeezed back into a space you know what, sort of my thing. son was was like nine nearly ten when we came back and on the first day we went out for lunch with my parents and he said to me Oh, and it broke my heart when he said this. He said, I thought I'd feel like I was at home when I came back. But instead, I feel like a wise old grandfather. And oh, I knew exactly what he meant. Because he <laughs> meant, I feel like I've got all these life experiences other people don't have. And I feel weird now. Because, like, my new my friends here, it's like, and it's not their fault. But they just don't know about, I've learned how to be an American. I've learned, I've got, you know, I can, I know how to yeah. do that. And they don't. And, you know, that's weird. So, yeah. yeah, I think it was really difficult and um, not least because we had all sorts of horrendous problems with leaking sewage pipes in our house. We had to live with my parents for two months. That's a whole other story. But, you know, that made it worse for sure. But yeah. from a sort of from a psychological point of view, it was difficult also to go back to something that felt like it was in the past at that point to go back was weird. Yeah, I recognize that. That's exactly my experience. And it's interesting you should say that because when I lived in America, I felt like I had a doppelganger who also lived in London and she was living this other life. And when I came back, we sort of joined again and I was one person instead of two. Wow, I love that. That's a great image, Eve. That wow. makes sense to me well, too. And it was funny because you traveled, Eve, with your work and you often came to stay with me. So and then it and it always seemed like it was just you being you in London with us. But you had this whole other life, this whole yeah. other existence that was going on. But I think that's how people that's those layers are kind of at the heart of the heart of this discussion, really, aren't they? That people have these different cultural experiences. And you might all be in this little microcosm of an office working on a project together or whatever workplace you're in, whether it's a school or some other scenario. But you've all got all these different layers, all these little doppelgangers out there you know of yourselves and these different layers and experiences which at face value you just can't see can you um, yeah. there was a great little meme that just popped up on my feed the other day it might have been in LinkedIn actually and it's this great big circle with a little, little tiny dot in it and the circle says this is the rest of someone's life and the dot is this is what you know about it yeah, I, I like that. I yeah, and I like that a lot that, because you, it's just the rest is unknowable. You know, that oh. you just can't communicate it, but you have to respect it, that it's there. And, and it's, as you say, Caroline, that they have all these other experiences. They have this other sort of other sides to themselves. And you have to know that it's there because you have that too. And if you respect mm -hmm. that about that other person, some of it will get revealed to you. Some of it will not. Some of it will get used at work. Some of it won't. And it, it's just really good to sort of know and respect that everybody has this. And I mean, we're talking about kind of in something, you know, in a lot of ways, really small stuff. But when you think about people who and particularly, you know, I think about the war in the Ukraine and people who just overnight had to leave everything behind and rocked up with their families in a different 
you know, a different culture, country and a different culture and are just having to get on with life. And it's not just Ukraine, it's, you know, the wars all over the world and immigrants from all different countries moving around all of the time. And that sort of that experience that they're carrying and, and when they come to a new place, how they are feeling. I think it's unimaginably difficult. It's obviously a, a totally different thing for someone like me to move to California and have a nice three years there and then move back, you know. And I, I kept saying that to myself when I was feeling bad when I moved back to, you know, leafy West London. It wasn't like I was in war-torn wherever, you know, like, why was I feeling so miserable? Of course, it doesn't really help first world problems. You're but it's the, it's the essence. Thing, but... it's, yeah, it's the essence of what we need as humans and how we want to connect with other people, though. Um, no, absolutely. And actually, one of the most rewarding things that I've done in the last few years, um, since just before COVID, is to be part of a, a group of people um, um, designing and delivering intercultural training for volunteers working with refugees and people seeking asylum. So I did this for a, an organisation called CETAR, which is the Society for intercultural education, training and research. And we formed a group of people to, to design this training, which was intended to be in person and then COVID happened. So we made it online, which actually was better because we can reach more people. So we work with, you know, representatives of various refugee charities around the country. And we've done a, a few specific ones focused towards Ukrainian and refugees from Afghanistan as well. Um, just because we realized that, you know, the people who've just come to this country, they don't have the headspace or necessarily the language abilities they might do but they might not to get their heads around how you approach living in another culture because they've got more pressing needs usually a roof over their head and you know mental health things that they're dealing with but the people working with them could really benefit from an understanding about how um, people from different cultures might be expressing the way they're feeling so yeah it's been really rewarding doing that being part of that that's incredible it reminds me of a friend of mine who spent a long time working with homeless people in the UK and she said she often came up against sort of issues like complaints that this particular person who they were trying to help hadn't turned up for an appointment to help them with something, some benefits or to get possible housing or some health appointment or whatever. And she used to say they don't have a watch, they don't have a phone, they don't know what time it is. Their lives are not like that. Their needs are completely different their priorities are about are they safe where are they going to sleep you've got to get yourself into the mindset of that life before you start judging about whether they've turned up to a particular appointment at a certain time and you've got to make it so that they can access those resources in a way you know they're capable of at that time of their life you know in the situation they're in and that sounds like a perfect example of cultural intelligence at work right yeah 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 absolutely yeah. it's about remembering that not to judge people through your own cultural lens but try and put yourself in the place is that empathy piece is that actually really imagining what they're going through and it's not the same as how you and they're not going to react the same way you would if you were going through the same thing so one of the things we wanted to make sure that we asked you was, how does one learn more and how, what sort of resources? And, and if I was interested in becoming more culturally intelligent, what should I do? Well, great question. In terms of learning more on the, the website, our, our website, which is um, culturalq.co.uk, 
we've got loads of free resources. So there's like webinars that have been recorded about the difference between cultural intelligence and emotional intelligence and various other webinars that you can access for free. And I think there's some blogs too. And there are some great books that have been written by one of our founders, a guy called David Livermore. He's written a, a book called, uh, his most recent book is called Digital, Diverse and Divided, which is all about how you can use cultural intelligence to try and combat sort of polarizing conversations or deal with polarizing conversations. Um, and he's also written another book called Leading with Cultural Intelligence, uh, which are very readable and I think interesting books. And in terms of what you can do, um, you can also get in touch with me and I would be happy to send you a free assessment to measure your own cultural intelligence. Um, you know yeah, I'm scared of, of that, Polly. <laughs> I know, don't be scared. The thing is, it's like, you know, it's not something to be scared of because it's just, it also depends very much on who you compare yourself to, Caroline. If you want to take it and compare yourself to the most unculturally intelligent people you know, then you'll come I out really high scores. Think... It's something to be aware of. Do you know what I really like? I really like the fact that we are in a place where people want to improve this. You know, I want to take the test because I want to be better at this because now I recognise what it is. Now I understand what it is and the benefits. And it's not just for me, it's for the people I work with. And also I want to be able to, it's the kind of thing you want to teach your children as well, that kind of put that into the way that you deal with other people which you try to do all the time and sometimes I feel I am a bit behind on things and I, I need to understand things better. When you ask well what can we do to improve our cultural intelligence one thing I was going to say was it's really simple and easy without doing an assessment or whatever would be just to have lunch or even just a coffee with somebody from a different cultural group to you like look at your friends look at your friendship group do you see a lot of people that are just like you? Probably in some areas. Yeah. They'll be different in some areas, but you may have yeah. a lot of cultural identities that cross over. So make an effort to have a coffee with someone who's different to you and just listen to them, get to know them a little bit, and suspend your judgment while you do. You probably find it really a really enriching and interesting experience. That's brilliant advice. I think we could all do that. Thank you, Polly. This has been such an interesting conversation, and we are very grateful that you spent your time with us today. Uh, thank yeah, you so much for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed it. No, it's absolutely fantastic. I think we could talk about this for hours. I know, I think we could. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, let us know about it. We also want to hear what you've been up to since turning 40. Get in touch on our website, rightsideof40pod.com. Follow us on Twitter at rightside40, Instagram at rightsideof40pod, and Facebook at the Right Side of 40 podcast. All content is arranged by Eve and Caroline. And a big thank you to Terry and V. Neal for writing, performing, and mixing the original music.